Hello and welcome to Zip Radio Podcasts powered by Accelerate. In today's episode, we are exploring serverless automation along with its scope, use cases, advantages and considerations. We are excited to introduce our guests, Hamdi Eid, Senior Solutions Architect at AWS and Giovanni Gravesand, Partner Solutions Architect at AWS. Leading the conversation today is Jeremy Chapman, Vice President, Software Services at Accelerate. So welcome on board, everyone, and over to you, Jeremy. Well, thank you, Madeira, for the great introduction, and really want to mention uh, gratitude having both Hamdi and Giovanni here with us today to discuss enterprise modernization and serverless automation. So with that being said, guys, what is enterprise modernization? Thank you, Jeremy. This is Hamdi, Eat with AWS. So enterprise modernization, you think about the typical definition that people usually define it is a process, right? By which you move old legacy system or old legacy workloads to more modern, more agile, more cloud native environment. It typically starts with a migrated workload or a workload you need to migrate, but it doesn't always have to be that way. And you take that workload and you start enhancing it with cloud native services and cloud native architectures. Now, when we look at our customer base, there are, we see a pattern, right? And the pattern is customers have different reasons for modernizing or moving to the cloud. Some do it because they want to improve staff productivity or basically VR resources. Some like to do cost management, uh, reduce their cost on premise, or move expensive licensing models like Oracle or Microsoft type of licensing to AWS. However, there are also other reasons, like, for example, leveraging big data processing, analytics, and we have over 200 plus services in AWS that you can use for everything from migration to modernization and so on. The thing to remember, Jeremy, is there is no single path to modernization, meaning sometimes people will migrate, you know, lift and shift or re-platform a single database. Uh, is that really modernization? I would argue, yes, it is. So there is, could be, we can categorize modernization in four different categories, and we can talk more about that. They basically using containers, serverless, managed data, or managed analytics. In my mind, I would say that internal modernization goes beyond just the technology. You have to remember these people and process are involved, and uh, you have to pay attention to the human factor. There's no doubt people are involved, and there's many journeys, paths, and approaches to enterprise modernization. I'm curious about, you know, the one-step versus two-step modernization. Yeah, sure. So we think about enterprise modernization is kind of a number of pillars, right? So kind of Hamdi talked us a little bit through a lot of that, the technical aspects, right? And he kind of mentioned the, the culture as well. So when we talk about modernization, we're not just decoupling monoliths. We're not just creating new architectures with cloud-native solutions. We're changing our culture. We're changing the way we do things. We are trying to automate a lot of our redundant tasks. Specifically, a lot of that is going to be looking at security elements, processes that you have today in your enterprise, you know, in terms of security, infosec reviews before you want to release products. We need to build as much of that into code and automation as possible. So that's part of the modernization journey. But for like, for the purpose of our conversation, when we talk about tech stack and AWS services and adopting cloud, like you mentioned there, there is a typical one step, two step, so there are possibilities that you can take, right? So we do tend to see a lot of success with two step migrations. So kind of taking what you have today, and moving it to EC2, for example, and then taking the time that you're now sitting in AWS to then sort of optimize and refactor your workloads, right? Mm -hmm. So 
that's kind of like two-step scenario. We think there's a lot of efficiency gains on the way in. When you do that, you start to create some muscle memory in terms of how I use cloud, more experimentation possibilities. And, and so you get better, right? If I'm looking to kind of like deconstruct the monolith now, right? You don't really want to do that across on-prem, colo, and into sort of AWS, right? You want to have kind of move that monolith into AWS if you can, and then sort of start to extract out your business logic out of that and create microservices, for example. So that's yeah. one aspect there. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. It's definitely a safe, it sounds like well-performed route that has been iterated on and polished over time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's also like an unblocking mechanism too, by the way. So if you have a customer that's sort of in a holding pattern for any number of reasons, the two-step is that unblocking mechanism, right? But if you have a customer that has a need to move quickly, they can certainly do the one step and have just as much success as well. So it's really the starting point. Sure. So it depends upon the situation, but the tried and true method is you'll have the recipe, which sounds very comfortable to embrace and adopt. With that, customers are achieving some but not optimal modernization. What's the prescriptive recipe or the steps that customers often miss in that tried and true process that be sure to mark as required versus optional in their journey? Like, should they use, you know, EC2 versus containers or do they go cloud native serverless or would it be more of a container versus cloud, cloud native serverless? What, what are the strategies and considerations there? Sure, I'll take that. So Giovanna said there's one step to step. I would argue that it depends really on the use case. It should be use case driven, meaning two step could be a broad approach. But sometimes we see customers that do, are not going to be moving anything to AWS, but rather go with native cloud-born applications. In this case, it would be one step. But sometimes also you have to make those, a lot of time actually, you have to make those architectural decisions you're fading to, Jeremy. Should I be, it's not just one step versus two steps, it's also from a technology stack or a technical standpoint. Sometimes you have to decide, okay, do I use an AC2 as a not scaling group or am I better off with Elastic Group Balancer when I'm modernized my application? And the answer to that is, both of those services actually help manage traffic workloads. You do workload management for back-end server, but you do it in a slightly different way. So if we look at the ALB, for example, Elastic Load Balancer for short, its main job is to distribute incoming traffic as evenly as possible among your EC2 instances that you define in what we call a target group. And then you, the ALB also ensures that the appropriate target group is being routed to, and it does health monitoring. So if it sees that an instance your EC2 is not healthy, it will not route traffic to it, right? It will choose a healthy one. On the other hand, but the ALB does not do the actual scaling. It does not increase or decrease the number of EC2 that you have based on your user traffic. That's when something like EC2 or scaling comes in very handy. In the scaling group, you can define a threshold, for example, I don't know, if my server goes up 70% CPU usage, go ahead and spin another server, right? Mm -hmm. So the auto-scaling group is the guy that actually does that increase and decrease in environment. But in practice, we see, and by the way, you do that using, you know, the alerts or metrics using our cloud, what we call CloudWatch, which is our monitoring and logging service. What we see customers do in practice, they actually combine the ALB with EC2 auto-scaling and with CloudWatch. But, but again, if you like, I mean, we also see other um, technical aspects as well as trade-offs in architectures. Sometimes customers ask us often, should I use containers or should I use serverless? Mm -hmm. 
So the answer is that it depends. Containers, for example, as you know, they are a way of packaging your application in a single object. So you put your application code, your runtime, your dependency, all in a single object. And that is typically a Docker container, right? And we have services to help with that. We have Amazon ECS, Elastic Container Services, and we have Amazon EKS, Elastic Kubernetes Service. On the other hand, serverless applications tend to be federation of services. So service application is about decomposing your current uh, monolithic application or your business functions into smaller microservices. And it's all about non-server management, meaning you don't have to worry about underlying heavy lifting of your infrastructures. But containers also provide you a more fine-grained than you would with serverless. You can control different versions of your runtime. You can control, have more control over what kind of programming languages you're going to use, right? Uh, you can even operate different software stacks across your container fleet. But that flexibility comes at a price, okay? And the price is operational price tag. There are more operational overhead that you would use with containers. So the bottom line is, if you're dealing with a legacy application uh, that's fairly complex, and you know it's going to take a month of engineering time to refactor the application for AWS, then I would go with containers. If you look more of a cell of a managed service in which pro staff productivity is key, you want to develop things very quickly and get them up out of the market at startup speed with lower costs, then I would recommend serverless. You've mentioned the legacy app. So define that. How do we determine these days what is considered legacy and what is not legacy? I mean, that tends to be a moving marker. Yeah, I mean, a legacy application typically is, think of a melodic application. It's all one piece. So you got the front end, right? Web applications, your UI, web tier, your web server tier, your application server tier, where your logic is running, your database tier, where you store your data, all built as one unit. So to make any change you have going to have, that's going to have a ripple effect on other layers as well. If you change the web layer, it's going to affect the, the logic layer, business logic layer, and the database layer. Then when you deploy it, when you go deploy it, you're going to have to also deploy it as a one unit. So it's, uh, it's a lot of operational overhead with it. And it doesn't, most important, it doesn't scale very well at all, if you think about it. However, in a non-legacy application, you just, you are breaking your application down into microservices. And each microservice is purpose-built, does one or more or two more things precisely and does it very well and nothing else. Mm -hmm. Those services talk to each other through API interface, right? Mm -hmm. So they think of it as a black box, right? Encapsulating mm -hmm. black box, all you have to do is the API call and get the response back, but what goes inside the box you don't know. Mm. And this way they are a lot much easier to scale, they're more manageable, you can have more developers work on different services. So these are a lot of advantages, and that's one of the key, key differences. You have a real distributed system with microservices and serverless versus a monolithic app. Thank you. Uh, Giovanni, you want to speak to the, almost as if I'm not interjecting, do you want to just kind of respond to MD with respect to the modernization pathways or the strategy? Yeah, I'll probably go back and uh, respond to the container topic, I suppose. So, yeah. Actually, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit more about that container, you know, cloud native services conversations because it's pretty interesting. So, a couple of things just for our audience to kind of be aware of when we talk about enterprise modernization. And we looked at a lot of our customer portfolios and what they look like, we tend to see that about 20% of that portfolio is a really good, are going to be really good candidates for like refactoring the application. So most portfolios are going to be somewhat lift and shift, somewhat lift shift optimized, a little bit of replatforming, for example. So bringing that back to kind of the container discussion and 
you know, kind of bridging that back to the, the one step versus two step we talked about earlier is that first step you take could be like a, a step one A and a step one B sort of thing, right? You can move to containers as part of your kind of first sort of leg into AWS Cloud, for example. So you don't necessarily have to move, copy, paste as is what you have. You can take that incremental step to get into some sort of a container technology. You can use Kubernetes, for example, EKS. You can use our native service, ECS, for example. That gives you a little bit of that operational efficiency, some muscle memory. You're getting your dev teams into the habit of the, you know, the kind of IDE development environment, release cycles, et cetera. And then depending on the application, the impact of the business, you know, revenue drivers, business impact, all these other elements can make the decision whether or not you want to take that step further to kind of go completely cloud native. Now, if I'm dealing with like a backend application, ERP applications, I'm probably not going to take the time to, to kind of do that move all the way to cloud native, right? So I, I want to look at the kind of my workloads that are really going to kind of really benefit from the level of effort I have to kind of commit to redesigning my applications to be completely sort of cloud native, right? So summary there for me is, you know, containers is a strategy for modernization, but it's, it's also sort of a, a strategy for initial cloud adoption to be at the onset, right? So it kind of uh, gives you optionality basically later down the road. It does, Giovanni. I mean, in my mind, yeah, containers is good initially. Like I, was, I see a lot of customers do lift and shift using containers, but you think to keep in mind also all, those, all this flexibility comes with containers. It does have a price, meaning containers are still more complex to configure and set up versus, you know, a several solution, right? Just simply because we handle a lot of the heavy lifting. So I want, you know, to remember, you know, there is all those pros and cons, right? Each is an approach. Interesting. So you mentioned the kind of cloud-native serverless, and I'd like to kind of dig into that just a little more. So Giovanni, what are the modernization pathways that define serverless automation? Yeah, so at AWS, we, we kind of have a framework for thinking about modernization, mm -hmm. and it helps us you know, kind of discuss it with customers, and, and it gives them an ability to kind of retrospective their own portfolios and kind of light, light bulb sometimes goes off when they might be thinking about a workload and not quite sure the pathway it should take. So the modernization pathways that we think about and we sort of teach and evangelize is basically we'd like to be talking about one of them is move to containers, right? ECS, all the way to the service option, Fargate, Kubernetes, EKS. Second is moving to any kind of managed sort of data service. So rather than running your Microsoft SQL within an EC2, you something like Amazon RDS, for example, right? That's moving to some sort of managed data option. Third is moving to purpose-built data stores, right? If I'm thinking about moving to microservices, you have to start to think about splitting up your data stores. You don't want everything to be kind of sitting in a relational database. Moving some of your data sets into kind of a purpose-built database, kind of that third pathway. And the last two is, I think what we're talking about a lot today is like kind of moving to cloud native architectures, things like Lambda, API Gateway, and anything that's kind of loosely coupled. So using sort of queuing mechanisms like SQS, customers also use Apache Kafka type of uh, solutions as well to do those sorts of architectures. And the last one is kind of a little bit obvious, but you call it out because it's important for customers to think about is moving to open source, right? Moving to open source is probably a pathway in all of your re-architecture conversations, but we call it out specifically because it's pretty important to understand like, you know, you'll need to move from, you know, a .NET framework to .NET Core, for example, kind of get the best out of container technology, right? So once I'm on .NET Core, for example, I can now drop that 
application into a Linux-based containers. And that gives me a lot more flexibility and options available to me in the kind of container orchestration ecosystem. And when we talk about moving to open source, we're also thinking about, you know, can I move away from some commercial licensed sort of application products? A good example would be like IBM WebSphere. You know, can I move that to something like Java, Tomcat? Right. For example, to some of the more obvious ones, can I move away from something like Oracle, maybe Postgres-based database? So those are kind of pathways in summary, really. The containers, cloud native, moving to open source, managed databases, and purpose-built sort of data source. Giovanni, yeah, I agree with everything you said, but I would argue also there's one more pass here, if I may. Sometimes yeah, overlooked sure. or not, and that's managed analytics, right? I mean, think about use cases. For managed analytics, like things like data lake initiatives, right? Big data process, real-time analytics, operational analytics, real-time data streaming. All those, you know, are valid use cases for modernization as well. Another path I see customers take. One managed data I talked about and managed analytics I'm mentioning now, they sound similar, right? Managed analytics is more really modernization that focus on providing the customer with more tailored insights, right, into business issues, enables you what we call speed to data insights. And most importantly, it's a modernization pathway to making better business decisions. So keep that in mind as well, that managed analytics is also another path that we see customers, you know, embark on. Yeah, totally agree. And the underpinning, by the way, of all of this is another sort of sub-pathway, if you will, which is moving to sort of modern DevOps. So that's kind of like a, a prerequisite requirement for any sort of a modernization effort is kind of moving to some sort of modern DevOps using the complete DevOps tool chain. You know, we have a lot of enterprise customers, you know, Jenkins, any type of build, robotic process automation type of processes, those sorts of things. So you may already have some of that muscle memory working with you today in your enterprise and kind of using some of the cloud native solutions to do that DevOps in the cloud as well as part of a, a prerequisite also. Absolutely. Yes, totally agree. Uh, automation when it comes to modernization is key. It's a must have in my mind. It's not optional. So yes, absolutely. And so what are some of the benefits there of that automation? Well, there's a lot of benefits, but let's face how about when it's actually divide automation, right? In terms of modernization, right? Before we start talking about the benefits. When we talk about automation, right? I'm thinking about two there are two different kinds of automation you can think about when you start modernizing. However, it doesn't matter if it's one step or two step. And the first one is infrastructure automation, right? And the second category is application automation, the automation of how you build and deploy your application. So for the first category, infrastructure automation, we are talking about automating the infrastructure, the compute, networking, storage, databases, right? That's what we mean by infrastructure automation. And that's I or IEC for short. AWS have a very mature and a lot of services that really helps with that. Top one in my mind is cloud, uh, Cloud formation, right? So cloud formation is our IEC service that help you automate the infrastructure as mentioned about everything from your networking to databases to your servers, etc. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just CloudWatch. If you talk about if you're doing serverless, for example, or not using serverless, we have an open source framework that we help develop called SAM or serverless application model. Serverless application model, think of it as a third layer that sits on top of cloud formation. Right? But it's a shorthand syntax that makes it very easy for developers to write this infrastructure as code. And under the cover, it actually gets exploded into a, a full cloud formation template. So 20 lines of same template will translate into 200 cloud formation. So we try to make it easy for developers that way. SAM also is a great tool because it allows you to automate, for example, your Lambda functions and your API gateway, and it is even locally without having first to deploy them to AWS cloud. Right? It's called SAM CLI, SAM command line interface. When we talk about application automation, 
Now we're talking about how do you automate, create a pipeline to build, deploy, test, and do continuous deployment, CRCD or DevOps, like Yuvan was saying. And for that, AWS also have, we have rich services that will help you with that. First, we have CoCommit, which is your source code repo in the repositories where you keep your source code, your artifacts, and then we have code build service. Code build will connect you to the repository, pull down your source code, and it will start building, and you can put all kind of scripts in there to, to do that. And the last thing I'll mention is Code Pipeline, which is your orchestrator service, and that orchestrates your entire pipeline, basically, from the minute you develop the application until you release that to production. So what are the objections to serverless? Why should I move to serverless? What do you all hear? Oh, the objection, one of the biggest objection, and Giovanni can jump in any time, is security, right? So we get the question, is it secured? Is our server application secure? And the reason is we use, you know, we usually, we usually use our managed services, so there is not that much control over them. But I would argue that, yes, they are actually very secure, and I can give you an example of that, focus on an application example, if you like, Jeremy. But at a high level, yes, it's secure because we provide for two reasons. The first one is our managed services. Like if you're using Lambda and API Gateway, for example, to build a serverless application, we make sure that those managed services are secure. They follow our application security best practices. Also employ AWS shared responsibility model. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's a model that we developed over the last 12, 13 years. It was developed by our ProServe team, and it's a collection of best practices, really, design principles and best practices. So it has a serverless lens and uh, strongly encourage everybody to read that white paper, well architected. And uh, shared responsibility model basically says we AWS responsible for security of the cloud. So we secure our global infrastructure and our managed services. And the customer is still responsible for security of your application and data. But we provide you with a lot of tools that you can use to secure your service application. For example, IAM, Identity Access Management, data encryption tools, provide key management service to encrypt your data and have your private keys, et cetera, et cetera. So for those reasons, I will say yes. Service application development is just as secure as any other application development. How about you, Giovanni? What are the common objections that you hear? I hear two common ones. The first is the aspect about sort of lock-in per se, right? And some of our customers might think moving to cloud-native solutions may specifically lock them into the AWS ecosystem. You know, multi-cloud is obviously a growing theme. It's open conversation we have with our customers willing to help build architectures that um, fit their needs for, for that sort of mandate if it's really required. So one of the things that we try to work backwards with our customers is, is to figure out if that multi-cloud strategy is important from sort of maybe a fear factor or is there something truly regulatory? Is there a truly something from, you know, impactful to the business that we cannot sort of solve in the AWS ecosystem alone? That sort of thing. And I know it's very real. So like I work with some financial services, focus partners and talk a lot about, you know, folks like FINRA, regulatory bodies. They're very sort of given Give customers sort of uh, some warnings about supplier risk per se, right? And so you need to kind of have their eggs in a lot of different baskets sort of thing. So we just kind of look at the architectures in these cases to see, you know, what's the best target architecture that's going to be able to be sort of portable. So this is a, a type of term that we were hearing now in the multi-cloud vernacular is about PTO, portability time objective. And so we work with our customers and kind of figure out whether or not there's a real cost benefit to having something like, let's say, a 15-minute PTO. In most cases, we don't find it. It's really necessary. 
necessary. We look at the continuum. Do I need something truly active-active across cloud? Am I okay with active-passive, active sort of pilot? Or do I just need a rebuild plan? Do I just need to kind of use a technology that allow me to kind of rebuild my workload quickly and, and sort of launch it somewhere else? And so that's kind of how we, we kind of approach that sort of aspect, common uh, sort of objection to serverless. Yeah, I actually, I'll, I'll sort of one more in the mix for you, Jeremy, that I keep hearing from uh, some of my customers. Sometimes they object to modernization in general and serverless in particular because they say myself, myself doesn't have, you know, uh, the skills, right? They need skills to do serverless or to move the cloud or they simply don't see the value. So for that, I'll give my customer two pieces of advice. The first one and the biggest one I always give is create a CCOE, create a cloud center of excellence. That's very mm -hmm. important. Mm -hmm. And what a CCOE is, basically a team that's internal to the organization mm -hmm. that's made up of business and technical people, people like, you know, business development manager, one from there, DevOps people, DevOps people, architects, cloud engineers, and so on. And what this team is going to act as an adjacent team. It's going to evangelize cloud as an organization, and they're also going to be the one setting the standards, such as reference architectures to use in the cloud, the reusable components, etc. But the most important part is they also do skill gap analysis, right? So that's the second advice I give my customers. Do skill gap analysis before you say, I don't have the skills. Look at the skills you have today and how is it different from the skills needed in the cloud? You would be surprised. It's very similar. It's just the set of tools actually used is different, right? Than what you use on prayer. So that's a common objection that I hear from customers. But once they do the skill gap analysis, then they can come up with a detailed short-term, a long-term, and even plan for the teams instead of just right out reject the idea of modernization. That's a great idea to scope out that timeline for the team to acquire the skill set or the right individuals so that you have the right staff. So exactly. Giovanni, how many people come to you and, you know, object when it comes to, to the cost? Is that a common objection? Yeah, it's a common conversation we have. We kind of looked uh, to kind of break down the journey in terms of phases, right? There's always going to be a cost to migrate. Customers invariably may have kind of parallel architectures living at the same time and having to kind of manage their legacy environments and new environments uh, simultaneously. So th that's kind of like the concept called the double bubble mm. of migration, right? It's important to have a real TCO or sort of business case done for a lot of our customers so that they can kind of see past the double bubble to mm -hmm. see sort of that sort of point of realization where the unit costs start to make a lot more sense. At some point, you're going to have to refresh your leasing, your, your software licenses. So we sort of capture those aspects and we do that over a time horizon. And we want to do it like over, you know, two, three years, even better if we could do five years. And when you start to look at it in that aspect, the costs start to make a lot more sense when you have a long view, right? And then the second aspect is, this is true for basically all TCOs when it comes to new technology adoption. You have to do it quickly, right? So the longer you're in this sort of limbo state, the worse your costs are going to look. The best ways to really accelerate adoption is kind of going back to what Hamdi just said is about that kind of skill set acceleration. But we also do really do encourage customers to look at partners as well. So even if you are a customer that is very familiar with cloud, you have the skill sets internally, we find that the TCO is going to be much better when you use a partner just simply because they're augmenting your staff, right? You know, your folks are basically, they're trying to keep the lights on today and mm -hmm. adopt new technology at the same time. Sure. It could be a little difficult. And one last thing too, you got to talk to your account team and really find out the programs available to you. So one of the most popular programs we have in terms of migrations is the MAP program, my Migration Acceleration Program. It's got a lot of interesting incentives depending on the workloads that you might be bringing to AWS. Definitely talk to your account team because 
if we can get you some sort of offsets with like sort of credits or cash, perhaps a partner that might be helping you kind of reduced your double bubble cost as well. So those are kind of three aspects that we talk about when it comes to cost. So that sounds like one of the first ways to get started. What are the other things that one should do to get started with serverless and that migration? I can just give you a very high level outline of how you might want to approach just modernization in general. I'll let Hamdi kind of jump in. But something you all, everyone should be aware of is something called Conway's Law. If you look it up, it's basically like your systems architecture. It's going to reflect your organizational structure, right? How your organizations talk to each other, how they're doing tickets today, your ITSM tooling, your architecture are going to reflect that. So a lot of that is going to have to change to really take full advantage of cloud-based services, right? You need to think about product teams, you need to think about product cycles and how we can sort of accelerate innovation, right? So we have to break down these silos and sort of put the right teams together and keep them small and agile, et cetera, right? And then thinking about the workloads themselves, right? Like if I'm thinking about this and I'm just having a high-level conversation with anyone, this is my step-by-step approach, right? I'm first going to kind of look to isolate domains, right? So let me look at my monolith, for example, and start thinking about where I can kind of segment and chop and partition these into sort of domains, right? It could be business logic. It could be based on user access patterns. There's a number of ways, but you just have to start with thinking about isolating your domains. And I think I mentioned this earlier. The second thing I would look to do is separate my data stores, kind of going back to that modernization mm-hmm. pathway. And then sort of the next iteration of my design, I'm thinking now, how do I decouple, right? I want to create some sort of a pub sub model. I want to start adopting queues, for example. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing I would do is use something like a facade layer. And that's basically where you've got your legacy architecture and you've got your new architecture sort of, they're sort of integrated through a common interface, right? And so as you start to break down your monolith, you want to want to direct users, your callers to the application to either the legacy app or the new build, basically, right? And so that's kind of like a facade layer. We have some services that will help with that sort of aspect. And we call this the strangler approach to modernization as well, by the way. All right. It's okay also to that you may have to kind of revisit some of this in the end as well. So the way you cut your domains in the beginning may not have been optimal, but once you're sort of using these services, you're sort of more agile, you you can make changes and iterate as you go along. So you're not sort of stuck with the architecture you selected from the beginning. But that's kind of like my high level roadmap, how I would sort of think about uh, application design and kind of breaking down sort of my modernization journey from a technical perspective. Amdi, what about you? What, What do you think? When I think about it, I'm thinking like, okay, because I get that question also from customers sometimes, Jeremy, is like, okay, I spent all my life in the data center, right? How do I, my mindset is different, right? How do I think, for example, if I'm going to use, if you're asking me to use serverless, how am I going to think serverlessly in a serverless manner, right? And how does that translate to a technical requirement, like Giovanna was saying? Well, the problem, the problem, the challenge here is when you, those things in the local data center, right? The server is your life, basically. The server is what you use to develop, install your software, build it, do versioning, do state management, and so on. So it's that atomic piece, or you know, atomic part of everything, basically. And in order to change that, you need to change your mindset, Jeremy, right? To serverless. There are certain tenants that you need to think of when you modernize applications. The first one is what we call features first. What that means is breaking down that monolithic application because serverless applications tend to be a federation of services, which will, should align or correspond to the features and functions, business feature and functions, right? 
The second thing that you need to think about is events, focus on events, right? Serverless, by definition, it's an event-driven model, right? You use an event, for example, to, you know, to trigger a Lambda function. So we'll think about events because an event could be an HTTP request, it could be pressing an IoT button, right? It could be a timed interval, but it is what causes the serverless workflow to happen. Another thing you think about is stateless, right? In a server environment, you are stateful, right? You control everything. Where does the state go with the service? Because we manage the infrastructure for you, right? We tell you there's no server management, which is true. Servers are right, right there. It didn't disappear in the background. It's just another burden was managing them. But where does the state of your application go? And the short answer is you can go into Elista Cache or DynamoDB. Think about the, your data flow, how your data flows you through your application from start to end. The reason you would do that is because you want to make sure you choose the right, correct data store. That's going to be crucial in terms of thinking serverlessly and because there's different data types, obviously. The structured data, semantic structured data, the documents. So you have to use the correct data store. And the last advice I would give, don't reinvent the wheel, use our managed services, right? Because there's a lot of hard scalability, reliability, fail over, and security building those services for you. Does that make sense, Jeremy? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And it's this is really helpful information. Thank you both for joining me today. We're going to go ahead and leave a form with this podcast. If anyone has additional questions, please fill out the form and we'll make sure that uh, you get in touch with Giovanni and Hamdi to learn more. Thank you so much for joining us, gentlemen. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy, and thank you, Hamdi and Giovanni, for joining us today. This was an exciting session, and I'm sure our audience got some great insights on serverless automation. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. For more information, visit our website, www.accelerate.com.